This morning we're beginning a new series of messages. Uh, we have a number of people in our congregation who are new to us, some new believers, and I want to make sure that we have a foundational understanding of what we believe and why. It's also good for those of us who have been around a while to go back to the basics from time to time to be reminded of what is most important and central. As part of the Assemblies of God Fellowship of Churches, we have 16 statements, or what we call fundamental truths, that we believe, and they include these things, the scriptures inspired, the one true God, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fall of man, the salvation of man, the ordinances of the church, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the initial physical evidence of baptism in the Holy Spirit, sanctification, the church and its mission, the ministry, divine healing, the blessed hope, the millennial reign of Christ, and the final judgment, and the new heavens and the new earth. Together, these are known as the 16 fundamental truths, and if you've been around a while or you've participated in one of our partner tracks, these won't be new to you, but I think it's probably good for us to further examine what these beliefs are and how they affect our church and our lives. And so we're going to take them one by one toward the end of this year and the beginning of next year. It also allows us some flexibility as we go into uh, missions convention and the Christmas season. There will be some Sundays that we can't do uh, a regular sermon. And so if we were in a book study, it might feel like it got kind of disjointed. And so we're going to do it do this because it gives us a way to focus on things that are central to who we are as a church, but also a little bit of flexibility over a time where there are going to be some interruptions. And this morning, we're starting with the scriptures inspired. If you've been around Bethany for very long at all, you'll have noticed that each week, myself or one of the other pastors speaks to you from a particular passage uh, from the Bible. You probably have deduced from this that we hold the Bible in high regard. It's a special sort of book, unlike any other. It's in a class all its own, and you've probably believe, uh, understood that we believe it has some kind of special authority because we speak from it. You've undoubtedly heard me and others refer to the Bible as the Word of God, and you may have noticed that we value a particular kind of preaching at Bethany. I don't just select a passage that I think sounds good and then uh, kind of riff off of it, tell a few jokes, insert a good story, and then hopefully draw a few cool life principles out of it. Rather, we value something called expository preaching. And in expository preaching, we seek to understand and proclaim the Bible in context. That means we don't just pick a verse and apply it based on what we think it might mean or something that happened in my life this week, but we seek to understand what the author, that is God speaking through a particular person, intended to communicate to a particular situation, and then from that apply the principles we learn to our lives. Let me give you an example of a popular verse that's often taken out of context. I'm sure you've seen this one taken out of context. It's Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You've probably seen this verse plastered all over the place like I have. My favorite is when athletes wear it prior to football games. Maybe they've got it on their shirts or something like that. Maybe they've got it on their eye black. They've got the Phil 413 on there, and, and they're looking pretty cool doing that. And I always just think, what if someone from the other team has the same verse on they apparently seem to think by this verse, and maybe, I don't know their hearts, maybe they don't mean this at all. Maybe they really understand what the verse means and they just like wearing it. But they apparently seem to mean something like, God's going to help me win this football game. That, I, I don't know how else to interpret it. And I just wonder, what if both teams are wearing the same shirt? 
And, and I, you imagine this scenario where, you know, they both got that eye black on, Philippians 4.13. One of them's a running back. One of them's a linebacker. The running back gets the ball handed off. He goes to the hole. He hits the hole. The linebacker moves over. He fills the hole, and they're about to collide. Who's God going to help? He must be up in heaven wringing his hands, trying to figure out, which team should I help? Do I help the running back plow over the linebacker, or do I help the linebacker plow through the running back? Who am I going to strengthen in this situation? Of course, that's obviously ridiculous, and it's made even more ridiculous when you know the context of Philippians, because Philippians is a prison epistle, which means that Paul wrote Philippians from a jail cell, where he was being held for proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And he didn't mean that I can do whatever I want because Jesus will give me riches and wealth and power and football prowess. He meant I can be content in any circumstance where I have been placed for preaching the gospel, even if it's in a prison cell through Christ who strengthens me. And that's what he means by that verse. And that's what the scripture is trying to tell us, and that's what we value with expository preaching. We seek to preach the Bible in context and apply it to our lives. That's why you'll most commonly find us in the middle of a series, like we just finished 1 Corinthians. On Wednesday nights, we're in the middle of the book of Acts. One of our core values, in fact, is expository preaching, because we want to rightly handle God's word. But this begs the question, why the commitment to handle God's word with reverence? Certainly part of our concern is that we just want to be right. We want to be truthful in how we present things. But if you misinterpreted one of Shakespeare's sonnets or you failed to understand one of Edgar Allan Poe's dark poems in high school, frankly, I wouldn't care all that much. So why the reverence to get right this one particular book? While there are many different views on the Bible and its authority, most conservative evangelical Christians affirm the Bible is the inspired word of God and it's supposed to be obeyed. Though in our modern era, that trend is growing more and more shallow as fewer and fewer people really understand and are committed to God's word. But the Assemblies of God, we express our belief in God's word and what it is this way. We say the scriptures, both the Old and New Testaments, are verbally inspired of God and are the revelation of God to man, the infallible, authoritative rule of faith and conduct. First, this statement assumes that the 66 books contained in every common version of the Protestant Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, are the ones that rightly belong there. And we're gonna talk more about how those books came to be recognized in a few moments. But the final part of this statement says that the scriptures are the authoritative rule of faith and conduct. What do we mean by the authoritative rule of faith and conduct? People assume some kind of authority for directing their lives. They, they take it from various places. Some people believe that authority exists primarily in the human intellect or the human reason. And there's nothing wrong with using your mind or trying to be rational, but some take this too far and make it almost a religion of rationalism. They believe that anything that can be known can be discovered via the scientific method, via the human mind, or through philosophy. They think that humankind will be able to save itself, or at least that we are the only hope for saving ourselves. Others believe in a sort of social authority in which you should just follow the culture or the government. If you ever talk to someone about morality and you ask them, do, I, do you believe that there's real morality? Sometimes they'll say, well, I believe that culture determines morality. What have they done? They've made culture, whatever they mean by that, the authority for determining what's right and wrong in their lives. They've taken 
culture as an authority. Still others believe that the ultimate authority concerning life and things spiritual rests in the church and its leaders. They believe that the church or her leader can speak just as authoritatively concerning right and wrong or doctrine or beliefs as the Bible can. They may even believe that the church has the authority to decide what books to include in the scriptures. But I think that that's placing too much trust in people. Others, like this church, believe that the word of God is the ultimate authority of life. And this view is based squarely on the belief that God is self-disclosing. That's an important idea, and we're going to come back to it at the very end to wrap things up. But self-disclosing simply means this. God is a speaking God. We might even say more specifically, God wants to speak to you. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2 says, Long ago, at t- many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. God's fullest revelation of himself, his love, and his plan is through his Son, Jesus. We call this the incarnation. Jesus Christ is the living word of God. And so the Bible is the written word of God. And while Jesus isn't physically present, the Holy Spirit speaks authoritatively through this word, the Bible, and teaches how to live and to live in a manner that glorifies God. And we believe the Bible is authoritative because we believe it's inspired revelation. The Bible talks about several ways that God reveals himself. He reveals himself through, through creation. Psalm 19.1 says the heavens declare the glory of God. He reveals himself through people's consciences. Romans chapter 2 verses 14 to 15 says that even the Gentiles, though they didn't have the same law that the Jews had, still recognized the law in their hearts when they would do things and they'd make judgments about what was right and wrong and their conscience would convict them or excuse them. Finally, God reveals himself through what is called special revelation. This would be things like miracles, dreams, visions, but especially the word of God, the Bible. And we believe that this special revelation of his word was verbally inspired. That means that the words of the Bible themselves were inspired. This doesn't mean mechanical dictation. What we don't mean is that God came into somebody, took over their body, and then forced their hand to scribble words on a page. That's not what we mean when we say that the words of the Scripture are inspired. Throughout the Bible, we find authors making their mark on the Scriptures. Particular vocabularies and favorite words are distinguishable among the various authors of Scripture. Writing styles differ from one book to another. So clearly God didn't just take over somebody's body and make him write. But we do believe in plenary Verbal inspiration. Plenary just means full. That means all scripture is inspired. It's a full inspiration. Verbal means that the inspiration extends to the words and not just concepts or ideas. Consider 1 Peter 1, 20 to 21. It says this, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit This doesn't mean that God spoke to each person in exactly the same way. He communicated verbally and directly in some places. He spoke through dreams and visions to others. He spoke to the hearts and minds of some biblical authors in a way that they knew it was God as they were writing. He used what they had seen in the testimony of Jesus as the apostles wrote it down as the Holy Spirit reminded them. doesn't mean they all experienced the same kind of thing as they were writing the scripture, but that God, the Holy Spirit, was inspiring them. But is the belief that the Bible is actually the inspired word of God justified? 
I've told you that that's what we believe, but should we believe that? Is that a justified belief? On what basis do we believe that? Before we start answering questions about the Bible's accuracy or where we got the Bible, its believability, I I first want to address how the Bible came to be in the first place. The story is a little different in the Old and New Testaments, but by the time of Jesus, the books of the Old Testament had already been around and they were, had been collected and they were considered authoritative by most Jews. These include the same 39 books that we have in our Old Testament today. We're going to see a little bit later that these books claimed to be inspired by God. There's internal evidence in them that they are reliable, and as a result, we accept these 39 books of the Old Testament as part of the Bible. However, the New Testament may present a little bit of a bigger challenge. It's usually the part of the Bible that people that you'll see on uh, social media or that you might meet at, the, at work, this is the part of the Bible they'll attack and they'll, they'll talk about how it's just you know a bunch of old white guys decided one day to get around and pick specific ver- books that would help keep them in power. And that's the claim about how we got the New Testament. In fact, you hear that in a lot of different places today. What I want to show you very briefly is that that's not how the New Testament came about. And this is a very, very brief showing. If you're interested to learn more about how we got the Bible, I would recommend a book called How We Got the Bible. And uh, I'll show you a picture of that in a few moments. But this is a great resource for you to understand, can the Bible be trusted? Where did it come from? But to start with, we need to understand something about the New Testament and how it came to be. And it, it begins with a word called canon. Now, cannon, I don't mean a, um, you know, something that fires a projectile. I don't mean like a cannonball or something that you shoot at the enemy. What we mean by cannon is a measuring stick of sorts. It is something that's used to judge what's in and what's out. And when we refer to the canon of Scripture, we mean how is it that it came to decide which books got to be included in the New Testament and which didn't. Maybe you've watched a little too much of uh, the History Channel and you see those guys on there with crazed looks in their eyes talking about the Gospel of Thomas or something like that. And they, they make this outstanding claim that there's a missing gospel in your Bible that it should have been there. What they don't tell you is that it wasn't discovered until recently, that it was 400 years older than the other gospels, and that there's no attachment from that gospel to any one of the apostles. They, they fail to mention that part. They just want you to be stirred up and fearful because then you'll keep watching their television show and they can take your advertising dollars. But that, be that as it may, we need to understand as Christians a little bit at least about What's there? Because you're going to hear people say it was just a church council and they wanted to stay in power. Is that really what happened? In fact, it's not what happened. In fact, we can see even in the New Testament itself, very, very early, that there was an understanding developing in the church that these were actually the words of God. It wasn't just a bunch of dudes centuries later that decided, oh yeah, these, we're going to tell people these are the words of God. No, no, no. The church, while the apostles were still alive, recognized that the writings of the apostles were in fact scripture. Look at 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16. It says this, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Doesn't that give you some peace when you read the Bible? If Peter found it hard to understand, you might too. That's okay. Keep reading the Bible. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the, notice this, other scriptures. In Peter's time, the other scriptures were the Old Testament. 
So what Peter has done is he's put the writings of the Apostle Paul on par or on the same level with the Old Testament, which is to say he believed what Paul was speaking was from God and had authority to guide the church just like the Old Testament. Now, some people will say, well, 2 Peter wasn't really written by Peter, yada, yada, yada. It wasn't come till later. I think it was written by Peter. I think it was written early, be that as it may. Even if we grant them that it wasn't written by the Apostle Peter, what it still proves is that there's a very early source, way before any church council that they could bring up, that demonstrates at least the writings of the Apostle Paul were considered Scripture long before any church council was ever formed. First Timothy 5.18 is another very early example of New Testament writing being accepted as Scripture. Look at it. It says, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's from Deuteronomy 25.4. That's the Scripture. That's the Old Testament written down. And then notice what he says. And the laborer deserves his wages. That's not in the Old Testament. It is in Luke 10, verse 7. And the Apostle Paul calls it writing. That's what Scripture means, something that's written down. So he's not talking about an oral tradition, something that was spoken. Apparently, the Apostle Paul was aware that Luke had written down the sayings of Christ. And he is holding up the writings of the Gospel of Luke on par with the scripture of the Old Testament. In other words, very, very early in the church's life, there was an understanding, these are the words of God, and we ought to follow them. Then from there, several apostolic fathers, church fathers who lived in the late first and early second centuries, and many of them knew the apostles themselves, they quote from, and they appear to hold as scripture many of the New Testament books. This is long before any church council. They, uh, they include guys like, and you might not recognize these names. If you do, great. If not, that's okay. Guys like Papias and the Epistle of Barnabas and Ignatius and Polycarp and one Clement, and they say, and they quote from the New Testament scriptures, and they hold them up like scriptures. In other words, what I'm trying to show you is that it wasn't just a bunch of old white dudes in the fourth century or fifth century who got together and said, oh, these would be good books for the Bible, but that the Bible was already being recognized right after Jesus' death and resurrection. Justin Martyr, writing about 150 to 160 AD, was already aware of and confirmed the four Gospels that we have today. The Muratorian Fragment, which was written about 180 AD, includes 22 of our 27 New Testament books, including the four Gospels, Acts, the 13 Epistles of Paul, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyons, gave some of the clearest and most comprehensive statements regarding canon toward the end of the second century. I'm telling you all of this because the councils people say that which these things were decided didn't happen until the third and fourth centuries. And what I want you to see is that that's not true. In fact, the church recognized very early that these were the words of God and that these should be followed. One author, Michael Kruger, says it this way. He says, we've argued that canon was not a late ecclesiastical development, that is, a bunch of white guys didn't just decide this, but was something that would have grown naturally and innately out of the earliest Christian movement. Moreover, we argued that even the authors of the New Testament appeared to have some awareness that they were writing scripture. All of these factors together serve to challenge the Big Bang theory of canon that argues that the canon was forcibly planted within the soil of the church by later ecclesiastical powers, whether Irenaeus or others, who were keen to refute the heresies of their day. Instead, the evidence we have seen here suggests the canon began more like a seed that was present in the soil of the church from the very beginning, growing gradually, consistently over time. So the simplistic notion 
that the canon of the New Testament is the result of church councils selecting the books they thought would help to grow and maintain their power is incorrect because writers and churches had been quoting and reading and relying on the books of the New Testament as Scripture long before any formal list was drafted. And this is not to say that every church had the same New Testament in its entirety or that there was a complete agreement throughout this process. But it is to say that the idea that the canon or the list of 27 books we now have in our New Testament was present very early and didn't just spring up due to a grasp for power. It did not spring up at all. It was actually the natural result of the church's belief that God had revealed himself in Jesus as the Word. And then, eventually, in 367 AD, there's a letter from Athanasius that contained the exact list of the 27 books we have in our New Testament. And this was a list that was accepted by the churches in the Mediterranean world. And then in 397, there was a council, the Council of Carthage, representing the Western Mediterranean world, and they agreed with these 27 books. But they hadn't selected them out of thin air. In fact, they had grown up in the church as the churches all over the world recognized these are the words of God. And in fact, this is how they chose them. This is how they recognized them. They didn't choose them. They recognized them. They used three criteria. The first criteria for authenticity of a book in the New Testament that they looked at was orthodoxy. Does it fit? Is it congruent with the basic Christian tradition recognized as normative by the church? Does it fit what we know about the apostles' teaching of Jesus? Does it fit with what the Old Testament says? The second was apostolicity. Was the book written by an apostle or a careful historian who was the associate of an apostle? And third, the consensus of churches. Was the book accepted by many churches over a long period of time? These three uh, factors, these three criteria for authenticity, uh, for, uh, for trying to determine, for ascertaining which books should be regarded as authoritative, uh, Bruce Metzger says that they were generally adopted during the course of the second century and were never modified thereafter. He goes on to note this, that what is really remarkable is that though the fringes of the New Testament canon remained unsettled for centuries, a high degree of unanimity concerning the greater part of the New Testament was attained within the first two centuries among the very diverse and scattered congregations, not only throughout the Mediterranean world, but also over an area extending from Britain to Mesopotamia. Keep in mind that during this period, you could not simply scan a document and upload it to the internet for all the churches to figure out. And so for the churches over such a broad area, geographic region, to have had similar books and to have held them in common and to have read them as authoritative meant that these churches were serious about these books and their understanding of them as the word of God. Now this is a really brief description of why the books in the Bible are there today. It's not the whole story, not even by far, but it is at least a basic glimpse of how the New Testament came together, and I hope that it gives you some confidence that it wasn't just a council making decisions they thought would keep them in power. And if you're curious to learn more, I recommend getting a copy of How We Got the Bible by Timothy Paul Jones, um, and you can see a copy of it there. This is a great book. It's easy to understand. It's a pretty simple read, but it will give you some insight into how the Old and New Testament came about and why we consider them authoritative. Now I want to move on to consider whether the Bible is believable. It is obviously a pretty big deal to declare that a particular collection of books is the only word of God. So on what basis do we make that claim? We can find justification for this claim both within the Bible itself and outside the Bible. So let's start with evidence in the Bible. 
If the books of the Bible are really the word of God, then we might expect the authors to have had some recognition as they were writing, that they were writing on God's behalf and under his direction. And that's exactly what we find. In the Old Testament, the words, the Lord says, or thus saith the Lord, occur about 3,808 times. Jesus himself accepted the full inspiration of the Old Testament. He quoted from the scriptures many times, the Old Testament scriptures. He accepted the Old Testament canon, the 39 books, as he received them at that time. And if Christ, the Son of God, and our risen Savior believed, taught, quoted, and claimed to fulfill the Old Testament, then this is the primary basis that New Testament Christians, or us, that we receive the Old Testament as our scriptures as well. Jesus quoted them and said he fulfilled them, and so they're our scripture as well. The New Testament as well, uh, it affirms that it is the word of God. Jesus promised the apostles that when he was not with them any longer, that the Holy Spirit would come, he would be their helper, whom the Father would send in his name, and he said he would teach them all things and bring to their remembrance all that he said, John 14, 26. The gospel writers passed along the very words and deeds of the Son of God. Luke claimed to do it this way in Luke 1, 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And the apostles understood that they were writing the word of God. You can look at passages like we did earlier, 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, First 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 2. They understood, I'm doing something more than just writing my own thoughts. Obviously, this alone doesn't prove that the Bible is divinely inspired, but it would be rather weird if we claimed the Bible was inspired and the authors didn't think they were being inspired, right? That'd be kind of strange if we said, these books are inspired by God, and they didn't ever claim to be inspired. That would be a little suspect. So we have to start there. They claimed to be inspired by God. Another internal evidence of the Bible and its reliability is its coherence and harmony. Though it was written by a diversity of authors over a period of thousands of years, the Bible exhibits a coherent story of humanity's need for a Savior and God's plans to rescue us through his son Jesus. It speaks to the unified voice concerning who God is, his character, his purposes. Contrary to the complaints of some, it doesn't contradict itself. And when it appears to, there's often a fairly simple reason for that appearance if you will simply give some thought and study to the issue. And there are a lot of places now where because of media, you find people attacking the Bible. You'll find them claiming that there are contradictions. Maybe you saw some. I found a video about contradictions of the Bible this week I want to share with you. It's a pretty silly one, a pretty simple one. There are more difficult ones to answer. But I thought I'd share some of this because it could be that some of you have watched some YouTuber, some TikToker, somebody on Snapchat claiming, oh, there are contradictions in the Bible. And you've gone, oh, my, what am I going to do? I just want to show you what you should do when somebody claims there are contradictions in the Bible. Would you, would you show that uh, video for me, please? The first one that stood out for me was when I was reading the Bible from beginning to end and came across the second set of commandments. So we have the first in Exodus 20 and retold in Deuteronomy 5. But there's another in Exodus 34. In the first verse, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Put together the two tablets of stone like you did the first, and I'll write upon these tablets the words that were in the first tablets, which thou brokest. And then we get a different set of commandments, which I guess God has a, a bad memory. 
So there's, you know, we need to be eating unleavened bread for a certain amount of time. There's a lot of, you know, stuff. There's oxen, there's whoring. There are quite a few verses that say, no one can ever see God. No one has seen God's face, but we have God appearing to Abraham and Moses. Honor thy father and mother. If you do not hate your mother and father, sister, brother, you cannot follow me. In Matthew 2, it says Jesus was born in the time of Herod, the king. In Luke 2, it was changed to Caesar Augustus. In Matthew 2, it says Jesus was born in Egypt and God told Joseph to take Jesus to Israel. In the book of Luke, it says Jesus was born in Nazareth and was taken to Bethlehem. I want to be very clear. These contradictions that I came across really upset me and broke my heart and it's a very devastating thing to research and look at. It's not devastating. So don't take it lightly and I'm not just saying, ha ha, I got you. I'm saying so that... You can pause it. Um, this is a simple one and there are harder ones. I, I confess I chose an easy one because I knew we were going to be short on time. But just think about what she says. The first thing she says is that there are two sets of commandments in the Old Testament. One in Exodus 21 and Exodus 34. If you've read it, you understand what has happened. The narrative got stopped because of the sin of God's people. And then he comes back and says, now you're going to write these things on the tablet. Did he say some new things then? Yes. But he never intended that all the laws were going to be written on those two tablets. That would be insane. They wouldn't fit. What he meant was the Ten Commandments. And if she would have kept reading in her Bible, she would have come across Exodus 34, 28, which says, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant. And then he clarifies what he means the Ten Commandments. So he didn't mean he's going to write everything down. He meant the Ten Commandments. Furthermore, she goes on to say things like, well, um, the Bible says that you can never see God's face, but there are other places where God appears. Yes, it's called an anthropomorphism. Face is a human word. God does not have a nose. He doesn't have eyes or ears or a mouth. He's God. He is spirit. And so it's using language to describe how he reveals himself. And so the Bible can use uh, an anthropomorphism one way in one passage and a different way in another passage. And if you understand how language works, that's not a difficult concept to grasp. Yes, we can say God doesn't show himself fully to someone. And then you'll find that God covers Moses in the cleft of the rock and he only sees his glory passing by. And then in that same chapter, which unless the author was just silly or foolish... You find him saying, and God spoke to Moses like he spoke to no one else. He spoke to him face to face. He's not contradicting himself. He's talking about degrees of relationship with God. It's not that difficult to, a concept to, to grasp. Then she says, well, the Bible says, honor your father and mother, but Jesus said you have to hate your mom and dad to follow me. And there I just want to go, come on, lady. And have you never heard of hyperbole? There's nuance to language. Jesus didn't mean actually hate your parents. He meant that your trust and your devotion to him has to be greater than your trust or devotion to anyone else. Simple as that. Very easy concept. Then she goes on to talk about some things that I don't even know how to, I mean, they're just, she's just wrong on them. Uh, she says that one gospel says Jesus was born in Egypt. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. I think she meant born in Israel and then moved to Egypt. So we'll give her the benefit of it out there. But then she says another gospel, Luke, she says, says Jesus was born in Nazareth and then traveled to Bethlehem. 
It just doesn't. In fact, Luke 2, 4-7 says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee and from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. While they were where? In Bethlehem. I don't know what she's talking about, frankly. I don't understand her confusion. And I feel rather sorry for her that she's devastated by a lack of faith by these things which are very easily solved. And what I want to encourage you with is, I know that there are other people who are devastated by equally, easily explained contradictions. And what I want to encourage you to do is when you hear somebody say there are contradictions in God's word, just pause a minute. Read the context fully. Ask someone who might know more than you do. Because usually there's a very simple illustration or a very simple reason why it appears there's a contradiction in that passage of Scripture that is an easy explanation for what you're suffering or the internal doubt that you're feeling and will help you to calm that. I'm not saying that there aren't things that are difficult to explain. Some things we have, some questions we have, we might have to wait for the second coming. But don't be thrown off by some video claiming there's a contradiction in the Bible. One particular area of coherence that provides us significant evidence for the reliability of the Bible is fulfilled prophecy. So far from contradicting itself, the Bible demonstrates the ability to predict the future because God is the author. Take Psalm 22, 7 to 8 and 12 to 18, for example. It says this, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. This was written by David, probably in the 6th or 7th century B.C. So hundreds of years later, Jesus shows up. And what do the religious leaders do and say at his cross? He trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Were those religious leaders all trying to prove Jesus was the Christ? No. They wanted something very different, didn't they? They weren't trying to demonstrate Jesus was the fulfillment of Scripture, and yet they, in their own words, fulfilled what God said would happen. Psalm uh, 22 verses 12 to 18, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Notice how specific it is and how specifically it was fulfilled. Not by Jews who wanted to vindicate Jesus, but by Jews who hated him. And by Roman soldiers who knew nothing of this prophecy, and yet at the foot of Jesus crossed, cast lots to divide his garments and fulfilled it. Micah 5.2 is another one. It says Jesus, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. And the Jewish leaders, when Jesus was being sought by the Magi, said, go check Bethlehem. They believed these prophecies, and the prophecies were fulfilled. In addition to internal evidence of its trustworthiness, there's also external evidence of the Bible's trustworthiness. Many claim that we can't know for sure what the Bible says because we don't even have the original documents or what are known as autographs of the books of the Bible, so we can't know what they said. How, could we, how can we claim the Bible is the word of God if we don't even have the originals? Well, it's true. We don't have the original documents, and there are hundreds of thousands of discrepancies in the manuscripts that do exist. 
Those things sound like enough to shake anyone's faith. And if you're watching a video on YouTube, you're probably going, oh my goodness, discrepancies in the manuscripts and we don't have the originals. But only if you don't dig a bit deeper and understand the issues. While it's true that we don't have the autographs, that doesn't mean that we don't have the original text. The original text can exist without the original manuscripts. For example, the original text could exist inside a multitude of manuscripts. If there were enough manuscripts of the New Testament in existence, then we would have confidence that even if the original text wasn't contained in any single surviving manuscript, the text would still be accessible to us across a wide range of manuscripts. And as it happens, the New Testament is by far the most well-documented book of antiquity. Currently, more than 5,800 manuscripts have been discovered, and more are discovered all the time. That doesn't mean that we have 5,800 complete copies of the New Testament from ancient times, but over 5,800 fragments or portions. And by comparison, the second best documented ancient book is Homer's Iliad with 1,757 manuscripts. Not only that, but the earliest manuscript we have for the Iliad is dated about 500 years after the original. In contrast, the church took so much care to preserve the scripture that the earliest manuscript in existence for the New Testament is within approximately 100 years of the original. Now, can these manuscripts be trusted? As I mentioned, scholars have identified hundreds of thousands of what they would call variants or what critics may refer to as errors in the manuscripts. However, the vast, vast majority of these so-called errors are easily identifiable scribal errors. Remember, they couldn't scan and upload. They had to copy by hand. And as they did that, sometimes they misspelled a word or they got a word out of place. And you might go, oh man, can we really trust the Bible? Yeah, because we have 5,800 of these manuscripts to compare against each other. So if one scribe got it wrong, another one didn't. And when you compare them, you can tell what the text originally said. Another external evidence that I want to mention, but that's a much more subjective one, but it's just as necessary as the witness of the Holy Spirit. How many of you have ever been reading the Bible or you've been listening to a sermon about God's Word and something hit you like a ton of bricks and you knew that this was God speaking to you? The Holy Spirit is the person who inspired the authors of Scripture and part of our faith experience is that the Holy Spirit helps God's Word come alive in us and to us. He takes and he applies that word to our lives so that we can grow and he convinces us of the truth of God's word. Now, all of these facts are necessary background for this last point. And I'll try to make it quickly, but this is maybe the most important point. And maybe I've bored you today with the history and, and you just don't care about these things. The reason I've taken the time to give it is because, well, there may be someone who does. There may be a young person who's struggled to, to, to figure out how to answer a, a silly TikTok video because it doesn't seem silly to them when their faith is being challenged by it. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, young or old, there are good answers for the questions you have. Like, grab a book, come and talk to me. I can point you to some great resources that will help you to understand that the arguments most often offered popularly by social media and in other places are just silly surface arguments and that we have great reason to trust the authenticity of God's word. But you know what? You could trust it. You could read it every day. You could paste it up all over your walls. You could memorize it. You could stand for what's true. And if you don't do it, it doesn't matter one bit. 
doesn't matter because God's word is more than just about you knowing that something was true or actually happened in history. It's also about knowing that it's happened in you. You know, it matters that Jesus actually lived and died. Don't get me wrong. They need to be true or our faith is useless. But you could know they're true and you could not live that truth in your life and that truth would then not have its effect in you. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that God's word isn't static, but it says this, it says the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's pier- it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You know, we can talk a lot about the Bible, but if we don't read the Bible in a manner that we allow it to, to cut like it should, that allow it, allow it to shape us as it should, then we're not faithfully reading the scriptures that God has provided. And think of what a shame that would be. I've taken a long time this morning to tell you something very simple, that God is a God who speaks. More than that, that God is a God who speaks to you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to talk to you. He wants you to hear his voice and his word. He wants you to understand who he is and what he's done for you. He wants you to understand how to live your life through the scriptures. God wants to speak to you. What a shame it would be if God has preserved his word through thousands of years and he's given us convincing proof that it's true, that it's reliable, that it can be trusted both from within and from without and we let it sit on the shelf and we don't read it. Or we do read it. We take it down and we, we look at it and, and we go through the motions and we check it off the to-do list and it's part of our Sunday routine. But we actually don't let it change us. We don't do what it says What a shame it would be if we have a God who wants to speak to us, but we have hearts that don't want to hear what God has to say to us. The Bible says, the Apostle Paul proclaimed that the word of God is for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 11 says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. How incredible is it that God would ordain the circumstances of a nation called Israel thousands of years ago. And he would do it in such a way as to bring salvation to them. But he would not only do it in such a way as to bring salvation to them from Egypt, but he would write those things down. He would make sure, as his Holy Spirit inspired prophets and apostles, that those things were written down so that when it came to a Sunday morning in 2022, that you would be able to hear not just how God saved Israel, but that God saves you through Jesus. And God knew what he was doing, and he did that for you. And so what I want to convince you of this morning is not just this is good, it can be trusted, but that it's good, it can be trusted, and so we ought to read it, and we ought to apply it, and we ought to listen to it. Because you know what? There's a problem. The problem rests with us. It's, it says in Psalm 95, 7 to 9, He is our God. We are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had been, seen my work. 
Think about the amazing reality that God would show up and reveal himself to the people of Israel, and yet they hardened their hearts. Think about the same amazing reality that God would show up and he says, I'm a God who wants to speak to you. I want you to know my voice. I want you to have my direction for your life. And yet because we also know that the, God, the word of God cuts, it divides, it judges our thoughts, it reproves, it rebukes, it corrects, but sometimes we don't like that and so we if we're not careful. My call to you today is that we would not only be a church where we say we have a value of holding God's word in high esteem. We have a value of preaching God's word rightly, of having expository preaching. But we would be a church that says we have a value, that we listen to what God's word says, and we come to it with a humble heart that doesn't say, I'm coming so that I can affirm what I already believe, or I can have a good argument with my friend and prove that I'm right, or I can check this off my list, but I'm coming so that God might speak to me. I understand that sometimes it's hard. You get up in the morning, you're reading, you're like, I don't know what this means. I don't get it. I don't understand. And yet how quickly sometimes we will put God's word aside. So I didn't understand it. I didn't have time for it. And all along, God wants to speak to you happened to them, written down for you. God wants to speak. Let him speak. Let his word have its place in your life. Read it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. And obey it. Because in doing that, there's blessing. You'll know God. You'll know peace. You'll know his joy. And you'll know the comfort of Jesus' presence as you read the words of Christ and the Holy Spirit applies them to you. Mr. Camille, Grace, would you come? Well, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for just a minute. We're just about done, I promise. And I want to say this as we close. I said a little bit earlier, I referred to John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Today we've been talking about the Word of God. And maybe in your life you've been searching for meaning or authority. You're trying to figure out who gets the right to tell me how to live my life. We do this at various times throughout our lives. When we're, when we're teens, we do it with our parents. Do my parents have the right to tell me how to live my life? When we get a, to be adults, we do it with our peers. Do my peers have the right to tell me how to live my life? We do it with social systems and governments. Do those people have the right to tell me how to live my life? And maybe you're searching for that because when you can figure out who has the right to tell you how to live, then you can kind of figure out where you fit and you can figure out what your meaning and purpose is in life. The Word of God says that God alone ultimately has the right to tell you how to live and that his authority supersedes all others should it be contradicted by parents god or not god should it be contradicted by parents or government or anybody else his word takes precedence and so today you've heard about the word of god why we believe it what we believe that it is but god's word to you today is this that if you're running from god if you're trying to figure out a place for authority and you have been hesitant against god rebellious against god he still loves you and the word of god tells us this that he loves you in this way that he sent his son jesus to die for you and that he took the punishment of your sin death on a cross and he bore the weight of your sin that you might be forgiven and god on the third day raised him from the dead so that you could have new life in him and the scripture says this, that God has now made Jesus the authority of life. 
He's the Word made flesh. And the Bible says that God exalted Jesus to the highest place so that at His name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And here's the good news, that He's done that so that you can be in right relationship with God. But the warning of that is this, that if you wait, if you don't do it, if you continue in rebellion against God, then there will come a day when even though you don't willingly bow your knee, you will have to recognize Jesus is Lord and yet you rejected Him. You'll be reminded that there was a day you heard the gospel preached and you did not respond. You sensed the Holy Spirit moving in your life and you did not repent. And so today I want to give you an opportunity. It's going to be brief, but I want to give you the opportunity. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, if you have never surrendered your life to him and said, you're the authority of my life, Jesus, your Lord, you get to make the calls. You get to show me what to do and how to live. And I'm going to let you determine where I go and what I do. And I'm going to live my life, not according to my word or somebody else's word, but according to your word. If you've never done that, if you've never received the forgiveness of your sins, known the freedom of, of being in Jesus' presence, if you've never been born again, today is the opportunity for you to do that. I'm going to ask you to do this so that I can pray with you. Would you just lift up your hand very quickly? If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, you've never confessed your sin and believed in him for salvation, and you want to do that today, would you just lift up your hand? Anybody like that? I'm not going to wait long. If you're online and you want to respond, just text the word HOPE to 413-300-6061. We'll respond to you there. Anybody here you want to do that? Don't worry about what somebody else is thinking about you. If that's where you're at and you know the Holy Spirit speaking to you, you've heard God's word today, be bold and lift your hand and let me pray with you. Is there anybody like that? We're going to do this then, church. If today you want to say in your life, I want to found my life on the word of God, and not only in saying that, I don't just want to read it, but I want to do it because I believe God wants to speak in me and speak to me. And, and maybe you have grown weary of it. Maybe you've made excuses. Maybe you, maybe you found it difficult to understand, but today you want to renew the purpose of your life to say, I want to live my life according to God's word, and I want to stand on it. I want to build my life on that and I want to make sure that it has the central place in my life and in our church so that we can hear what God is saying to us. If that's you, would you just stand to your feet and we want to pray together this morning. If you would just say, I've heard what the word of God is and I want to make sure my life is founded on it. I want to listen as God speaks to me and proclaim that it has that central place of importance in my life. Just stand and I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, together we stand today and we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word. Your word confirms that it's a lamp to our feet and it's a light to our path and yet we confess sometimes Lord, we choose to walk in darkness rather than get the lamp out. Lord, we confess that sometimes because we felt discouraged, because we would rather sulk in our own human emotion, because we're afraid that the word of God will cut, will divide, will rebuke, will convict, because we're afraid we won't understand or for a hundred other reasons, Lord, sometimes we fail to pick up your word. We confess as well, Lord, that even sometimes when we do pick up your our hearts have been hardened. It's become rote. It's become routine. But this morning, we ask that you would renew your word to us. Send your word to us again. We know we have it in the Bible. But we pray that as we pick it up later today, tomorrow morning, that you would help us as we read it to understand that you're speaking to us. Give us clarity and understanding in what we're reading. Give us perseverance in us, in it, and let us know that you're directing our lives. 